Hey everyone, David here. It is Season 2, Episode 8 of the Mammal Podcast, and it is my pleasure to announce a brand new host who is joining the fray. Raisa Kabir is a second-year medical student at the University of Minnesota. She has an engineering background and formerly spent time working at Boston Scientific and is passionate about reducing disparities in the mammal space. She is a naturally gifted interviewer with a strong technical background. I hope you all enjoy. This is her very first episode. Hello everyone, my name is Raisa Kabir and welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. Today I'm joined by Dr. Quinn Nguyen from the University of Maryland. She is an assistant professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. Dr. Nguyen is a social epidemiologist focusing on contextual and economic factors as they relate to health. She leverages technology and big data sources to investigate and address health disparities. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Nguyen. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yes. And I'm going to start off with asking a question that we ask all of our guests. Can you tell us a little bit about your path and how you eventually got involved in big data and AI and health and particularly with hashtag health? Yes. So that question is, I feel like with um, all our life stories, I feel like one thing leads to another. So it's, um, I like it could even begin like when I'm like born in my childhood in a way, right? Because I feel um, I'm the kind of person that thinks back to like examine, um, you know, how like your life experiences, what you went through, what you see and how you kind of use that to to see how you would respond to the world, how you contribute. Um, so I guess the quick version is I was born in Vietnam um, and my family left Vietnam when my sister and I, I'm a twin, uh, we were like five years old. So we left and uh, we went to the Philippines. We were at like a refugee camp for about seven months. And then we went to California. And then I grew up basically in California from the age of five to 23. So I grew up in California, kind of saw um, the public school systems. I was lucky enough to like um, be there with my extended family. So I had like a lot of cousins and um, to hang out with and my aunts and uncles. So that was like a really nice environment to grow up in. Even though it was like a new country, we had like our unit and uh, we had like family parties. Um, and I saw that, you know, even though we, we had transitioned to entirely new, new world, um, like a different situation but I saw like my cousins they they went to Berkeley so even though like they didn't know where they were gonna what they were going to do you could like I could see that you could still achieve what you wanted to do and that in my mind was like okay you can kind of set out what you want um that was so I had really good role models um and when I was in high school I participated in a program called the Stanford Medical Youth Science Program it was actually for high school students thinking they might be pre-med in college. So I was one of those like people who thought they were pre-med. But the weird thing about that program is it's run by a social epidemiologist, Marilyn Winkleby. And so instead of getting like further interested in medicine, I got further interested in social epidemiology. Um, because then you could see the choices. So you can go like do like patient level care, individualized care. But then I was also um like attracted to like what does the population patterns look like? How do you do like broader stroke preventive measures um, and how do you study disparities and like the social factors that impact people's health i would say that's like my like first glance at that kind of world in that kind of discipline 
Um, I also, as like a student on like the east side of San Jose, I didn't really know what my choices were for college. Uh, I didn't even know where Stanford was before I got into the summer program. <laughs> even though I lived so close to Stanford, I was like, that's just like an entirely different universe. Um, but I think they really helped like me see possibilities in my uh, advisors that program helped me apply to Stanford. And then me and my sister uh, went to Stanford for our uh, like undergrad. And so I was with my sister and we explored different things and I continued to get more and more involved in public health. So I worked in the uh, Stanford Prevention Research Center. Um, I took a lot of like uh, sociology and human biology courses with so like the blend of biology and sociology. So that kind of like basically set me on the path to being a social technologist because that seemed to be always what I was more drawn towards. Um, and so, and then later on, I like after my undergrad, I went to uh, AmeriCorps for my gap year um, where I worked with like a nonprofit serving youth because I always, uh, I think that like the, there's critical periods in your life. And I think one of the critical periods is going to be adolescence and a young adulthood where you're making the really important choices of like what you're going to do with your education, what you're going to do with your training. And so I've always like, um, you know, I always see that as like being super important to cultivate. Um, and then I went to UNC for my graduate school. At UNC, I was like trained on uh, like, you know, foundational things like causal inference, uh, large national surveys because UNC runs like the national at health. So it's like an adolescent and young adult survey. Um, but finally, when I got to Utah as a faculty, um, I had to kind of like, you always think about how you're going to make your own contributions. And as like a young faculty member, um, you, you, to implement a national survey, it's going to take millions of dollars, like tens of millions <laughs> to do it right. And you don't have tens of millions <laughs> as like a young faculty. And so it's like, okay, well, what can I do? And then I started attending I would say one piece of advice is to attend like seminars from like different disciplines because you're at a university and often there's like seminars from computer science geography information science library science sociology political science not like I think it's good to kind of immerse yourself in in other fields because you start to see like where those tools can be leveraged and so I don't know why I started attending seminars in computer science uh, but then I was like, that's it. Like, that's one of the things that could be advanced. Um, so the blend of using, and also like social media was on the rise. And we had like a lot more, like we're in the um, era where we have a lot more data. Like we have like, for instance, the um, grocery purchase cards, we have social media, we have all these like data sets that are just accumulating. But as public health, we're not necessarily trained to analyze these data, but we're just kind of, spending a lot of money collecting data, whereas uh, where other data could be leveraged to answer some of the questions. So that's where the idea came in, was to kind of leverage uh, like skills and techniques in computer science for social epidemiology. So my first project was trying to understand. I also, as like um, a postdoc in, in my um, like graduate school years, I, was, I wanted to study social factors and neighborhood factors, but that's actually really difficult especially neighborhood factors, because um, a lot of neighborhood studies are like done by doing on-site visits or like neighborhood inventories. Um, and like, then you have studies in like Boston or New York or Chicago, but then you don't really see like national patterns. And if you wanna try to characterize like neighborhoods or social context, 
Um, one thing I was uh, I proposed to use was social media, like Twitter, to try to understand like um, in how places differ. I think because I came from like an immigrant perspective, I realized like how different places can be. Sometimes it's kind of invisible if you're not like exposed to different contexts, and you're like it's like you kind of take the air for granted but then you're like wait the air is actually very different if you go to different places so measuring what is kind of invisible um and so the first project is using twitter to try to understand like the social context of places like what's the happiest happiness levels what are the um, popular foods in this particular era what are like um trends in physical activity so my first project was general just trying to capture those basic physical activity, nutrition, um, but leveraging social media, natural language processing to do that. So it's like using tweets to try to characterize the environment and using their geotags because we have like um, geographical identifiers with the tweets, like a, like a subset of tweets. Um, and that just like set me on the stage for like, what are other questions where we can use big data for health? Um, so I would say like trying to make my contribution, seeing where the gaps are and where the challenges are. And the challenges is like, the like the lack of data on social contact and lack of data on anything. Thank you for that. Um, that was so powerful to just hear where you come from and how that contributed to your current work today. It was also interesting that you came across computer science in the seminar and decided to go with it and run with it. How was that learning curve going from the social and public health arena to learning an entirely new field? Yeah, so I would say, I think that's something that is intimidating to folks, especially because like, you know, we take a lot of time to learn our substantive area. Like you get your PhD, you get your MD, you get your JD, and uh, and then you're like, how do I cross disciplines like that? Um, so I think what um, the, the first grant I wrote had like a, both a career development and a research development like research component. So the career development part was like me sitting in more classes. So I sat in more computer science classes. I think I might have sat in like three or four. Um, so with time, you kind of like build a little bit more. Um, but also for me, I kind of, um, I had the mindset where I didn't need, I didn't want to get necessary PhD in computer science. I wanted to kind of use my PhD in like epidemiology. And um, that's perfectly fine. Like, um, the good thing is like you interface. So I work with like a faculty in computer science and I work with a faculty in computer engineering and they like, you know, they will be the ones to be like, oh, I think this method because that's their substantive area. And they also like supervise a student and help implement that aim. So like um, as a investigator, you, you don't have to carry the burden that you're going to have to do it all. Um, and like, it doesn't have to stop you where you're like, oh, I actually don't know how I would implement that like deep learning model. And, but that shouldn't stop you because you can always partner. And that's like the beauty of interdisciplinary work where you're like, you kind of contribute by looking at, oh, I think this, this problem of neighborhoods, like characterizing neighborhoods and looking at what neighborhood factors impact health. That's what you kind of learn as a public health person, but then you need to interface with like computer science to be like, okay, how can I extract that neighborhood characteristic for you? What are some like interesting methods you can use? What are some limits to the models? And they can help you like figure the technical aspects out, but then it, you don't have to like try to figure that out all by yourself. I think sometimes when you have that, like it kind of stops sometimes people from 
from like doing that work because they don't really see that it's really a partnership. Um, like for example, like I went on to like propose projects in the Google Sheet View. And so instead of using like manual annotation of Google Sheet View, um, that was even a leap. So like before when people were trying to understand like build environments, they would be like, okay, I'm going to go to the neighborhood. I'm going to say, how is the sidewalk quality? And there's like a clipboard with like different indicators. And I'm going to say building type or physical disorder is their graffiti. So it was like a really long like inventory. And there was like a leap where um, it's called a canvas project where people were like, no, I can use Google Sheet View. Like I don't have to travel to that neighborhood. I can annotate the neighborhood environment from my computer. Uh, but then we took it one step further and be like, instead of like, instead of doing all the annotations by hand, we're gonna do partial annotation, like do the annotations to train them our computer vision model and then using the computer vision model for inference. So we kind of like, um, instead of relying on clear annotation, we're gonna like build a model to recognize those features and to like scale up. Because like in the end, I think the the paper that caught your eye like used like 164 million images like and there's no way like a team would be able to annotate that. So we kind of took it one step further to try to automate some of the processes. Yeah, that was the original paper that um, brought your work to my attention, and I was like, whoa we're using Google Street View images to infer like COVID-19 disparities in particular neighborhoods. I thought that was absolutely crazy, but like such amazing work, which is actually a good segue to my next uh, topics of questions is regarding all of your current projects and particularly hashtag health. In your words, what does hashtag health do? I would say like, uh, because our data sets are varied, um so far we've used like different data sets so first we started with twitter and then we actually use yelp data um try to understand like popularity of different cuisines and then we use like google street view for like built environment characteristics um and now we are moving on to using um like health information materials and we're building a um, an app called rosie the chatbot so to kind of feed Rosie, like Rosie is a, an app where she'll, um, you can, a new mom can ask Rosie a question like, um, how much milk does my three month old infant need? And then Rosie hopefully will be able to issue a response. And her response is going to be from just like websites that we allow for. So like websites by the CDC, by children's hospitals, by like American academies, um, like, you know, like, um, and so just like vetted websites. Um, but so the data set varies, but like the the aim behind it is to try to leverage big data in order to address health disparities or to investigate social epidemiology questions. So like what social factors are important for health? How do we intervene? Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up Rosie the chatbot because that was one of the things that really caught my eye um, because I think uh, your goal, at least from what I have read, is basically to um, have this option of personalized care available to racial and ethnic minority mothers, particularly. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, how did this idea come about? Did you collaborate with somebody? And how are you taking this dearth of information, um, you know, from 
all of these societies and vetted information? How are you incorporating all of that into a chatbot? Oh, yes. So like you came, it was actually just a, a coffee hour. So I was meeting a colleague. We, we meet like once a semester, at least for coffee. We're sitting there, we're both moms. I was like, oh, it's so confused to be a mom. We have so many questions, nobody answers them. We have to just keep asking our pediatrician. And she's like, you know, like, there's only so many questions you want to ask your pediatrician um, because like they, you know, they, they're busy um, and you don't necessarily want to bother them with every little question. And so the idea came where we're like, we, and my colleague knew of a bot um, by Planned Parenthood, I think called Row, Roo, um, and we're like, oh, I don't think there's an app for moms, like where we can ask, like where mom can ask her questions, but then the information would be trustworthy. So instead of going to Google, like, you know, where like there is trustworthy information, but you also have to like dig through. We wanted yeah. to establish something where it would like only vetted sources. Um, and it was like personalized so that like, it would answer the questions that like a particular mom had. Um, when we were like looking at like um, interventions that were currently being done in like Maryland, we didn't see, there was like a systematic um, inventory of all like the health interventions for like maternal child health. And we saw none of them in Maryland was using like this kind of technology, the question answer bot. We're like, I think there's, and also because like it could scale up. Um, so we can kind of serve lots of moms at once. Um, from talking with hospitals, we saw that they would triage where the high risk families would get like in-home visits by nurses, for instance, but there's only so many nurses that are available. And there, you, so you have only a limited number of families that can be served. Whereas like Rosie can be scaled up to just, you know, to any mother who would be interested. Um, and so that's where like the seed started and we kind of investigated other bots where it was like very strict. So like uh, there, there were bots that exist, but you basically, they have to like walk through what they have planned. So you, it's like more narrative based where you're like, hi, how are you? And then you click and be like, good or like bad. And then you walk and then you like, and then you have to like click and you couldn't really ask your questions. And so we wanted to make Rosie like flexible where like the, the, the conversation be led by the mom um, and she could like determine like what she wanted to know. Um, so the, the, the way health information is delivered oftentimes is like by flyers. Oh, so here's like a flyer on breastfeeding. Here's a flyer on this disease and stuff. But we're like, well, like, but we're assuming what questions the mom has. We wanted like a completely flexible platform and to be there for like middle of the night questions. So is it available already or are you are you all still figuring kinks out or what is it? Yeah. Um, so Rosie was funded by um, NIH for five years. So this past year was year one. And so we're at the end of year one heading into year two. Um, and we we're, uh, we have a prototype for Rosie, but we're trying to polish and enlarge Rosie's knowledge base and so we hope to pilot Rosie beginning winter, like this upcoming winter, and then do a full randomized trial, start recruiting for that like spring. Um, because in, embedded in this project is a randomized trial to see if Rosie can impact like maternal and child health outcomes. So the, there are like only a few outcomes that we're gonna look for. We're gonna look for maternal depression. So postpartum depression 
um, compared to the control group, do treatment mothers have lower depression? Um, and then compared to control group, do uh, infants in like the Rosie group, do they have fewer emergency room visits? So we hope that Rosie can kind of um, de-escalate and just uh, like kind of address issues before they become emergencies. Um, and so hopefully we will see reduction in emergency room visits and also attendance of more well-baby visits. So Rosie's gonna send out reminders for moms to like attend their, there's like a whole schedule of like more baby visits that you like it's kind of, sometimes it's complicated and women don't know what to expect so rosie would send out oh your well baby visits coming up and here's what's going to happen you're going to get this vaccine or your um your doctor's going to do this screening for autism so um we we were trying to be very feasible so it's just like depression maternal depression lower emergency room visits and like a better attendance of these well baby visits for like the core outcome um, in a randomized trial of 200 treatment members, 200 control members. That is so cool. Oh my gosh. Um, is Rosie going to be available on a website, on apps, or have you all thought about that? Oh, yes. So Rosie's going to be available on an app. Um, after the randomized trial, I think we're going to evaluate the outcomes, and then hopefully if things all work out well, and Rosie's going to be an open source. Um, where like organizations are interested in uh, downloading the infrastructure for Rosie, um, we'll have access to it. And also we, we probably will have, so they can kind of customize Rosie, but we'll probably also launch Rosie just as a standalone project for, for users out there who want to download Rosie on their phone. Um, but we kind of want to do the, the trial first and like evaluate uh, the impacts of Rosie and then um, address any bugs that are encounter any difficulties and then um, address them and then release it as an open source project. Do you, does your lab um, have any computer scientists or oh, yes. data mining people like working on this? Yes, those that's core. I would say that's like um, the project has um, Jordan Ward Garber as the CS faculty, um, and we also have a CS student, um, Maya, on it. Um, so, and then we have Another master's student from the UMD has this human interaction program from the high school. So we definitely have the, we, it's definitely necessary to have like tech people on the team because Rosie, um, there's not, there, there doesn't currently exist a Rosie until you have to build a Rosie. But at the same time, we also have um, behavioral and community health people that uh, uh, help construct the Rosie knowledge base. So like, what is, what are information, what is information that moms find relevant? What are like relevant information for maternal child health, like nutrition, sleep, breastfeeding, um, pregnancy concerns, postpartum concerns. So there is like a strong public health component and two people on the team have a clinical social work background. Um, and then of course there's an epidemiologist and biostatistics um, people that um, do the study design and make sure it's powered to examine these health outcomes um, and like design the study and think about founding and selection bias. Um, and so I would say it's very interdisciplinary and you kind of need different specialties working on it to carry it forward. That's amazing. It's, I, it's so fun that you were just talking to one of your friends and decided <laughs> to like, oh, let's make a difference. And now you guys are doing it. It's so cool. Um, so we talked a little bit about the neighborhood effects um, 
that you guys are trying that you all are trying to analyze through hashtag help and there will be the chat bot. Um, is there any other topics or projects that hashtag help is currently undertaking? Yeah, so I would say another um, arm is like trying to understand initially like the Twitter analysis was more on like general neighborhood characteristics like food, sensitivity, but now we've like the version two is to look at like discrimination um, and racism. So we do have a project underway that's trying to um, create a model to detect um, racist content on social media. So like when when a tweet is sent, like we can kind of characterize this as have like um, you know is is there discrimination here? Is there racist content here? Um, so um, that's going to that's using a deep learning model, um, and it's helping because there's like you know no way for like a team to read all the tweets and kind of tag you know all the content. Um, so we we start with like uh, labeling of like a set of tweets or racist content, and then that it's used to train the model. But unlike previous models, like the model to detect racism is much more complicated because there's a lot of nuance, um, much more so than like models for like sentiment, for instance, like neutral, sad, and um, and happy. Um, so the, the the project is working to create a deep learning model that can detect racist content on tweets and then to use that model to classify like millions of tweets and then to associate like a a racism score with certain areas. So like, for instance, if you live in a county that has like higher um, like racial discrimination, at least on Twitter, do you face like, do women in that county have higher adverse birth, have higher like cardiovascular disease, like adverse birth outcomes and cardiovascular disease outcomes? Because um, in previous analyses, we were linking higher negative racial sentiment. So if a tweet mentioned a race group, and that tweet was more likely to be negative. We saw that in those areas, women had like more preterm birth, more low birth weight babies, and also higher cardiovascular disease. Um, and so, but then version two of that is to look at not just like negative racial like sentiment, but to look at like racist content. So not just like living area with like negative racial sentiment, but like areas that have like discrimination like um and like um racial hostility and you know racial stereotyping and whether those areas are gonna also see worse outcomes so with that particular project you touched based on it a little bit about how big the data set can be especially like all of the tweets i was reading a paper a little bit i was just like glancing over it and it said something along the lines of how um like you said you were looking at very racially discriminatory tweets, and there was about 30,000 tweets that uh, your lab and you all um, collected. After you initially find those 30,000 tweets, how, how does that process, what does that process look like? Like, is somebody um, reading through each tweet, or do you have a program that's like looking for specific words that are potentially insensitive and discriminatory and racist? Oh, yes. Okay, so um, the process is um, a few steps, um, and I feel like it's it, it's like um, doable. 
um, for like other labs out there. So the first step is like you decide like what kind of indicator you want to create. So like for us, we want to create an indicator where it like is um, able to look at like a tweet and like if that tweet has like a negative stereotype towards a particular race group. So um, that would be flagged as like a one. So that would have like, we kind of categorize that as being like having racist content. So it has like a negative stereotype of like a race group. Um, so for instance, if it was talking about like an individual, like so-and-so is like, like, uh, like unclean or like something like, or lazy, but like it's mentioning an individual and like you, when you're reading the tweet is like in reference to that particular individual, then that wouldn't be racist. But if you, if a person reading it would be like, no, they're talking about like a race group and like saying that, 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 that race group is like, you know, lazy or whatever, then that would be flagging as like having racist content. Um, and so for the model so far, we have, um, I think about 10,000 tweets that are labeled as having racial, like racist content or not. Um, and then you use that to train your model so that your, the second step is to use that as training data to create a model. And so far the, um, the accuracy of the model is around 0.7, like, or 70%. Um, we hope to like increase it more. We often aim for like 80% or higher. So I would say it's still a work in progress, but so far the learning base is okay, like around 70% accuracy. Um, and so you use that model to like, it, like predict on like many more tweets. Um, and like it's the scale has gone bigger and bigger. Like, um, and with time, like Twitter data, Twitter has more and more users. So, um, and we are also collecting tweets from multiple sources. Um, so like the, Twitter has both a streaming uh, service for a streaming API where you can collect tweets as they are being sent, um, a subset of tweets. And then it also has what's called an academic track where it allows you, like uh, investigators from universities can apply for the academic track and allows you to pull historical tweets. So it's like two different sources and like just one month of data we just processed, like, I think from 2015, it was like 33 million tweets from like, I think January, 2015. And wow, that's crazy. Like there's like 500,000 that are race related. So to kind of, oh yeah, to identify what tweet is race related, we use like a list of like 600 race terms. So these are like um, neutral categories, like Asian American, African American, um, but they also have like racial slurs. So we kind of use that to filter the tweets so from like 33 million, you get down to around like 500,000. And then on the 500,000, you run your deep learning model to identify which tweets have racist content or not. Mm -hmm. And so the, the scale of it is like all tweets in a month, 33 million, or at least the subset that we like that Twitter gave us access to, and then 500,000 for that month. And then of that, a, minor, a small portion would have racist content. That's so cool. But that's also very important work currently, especially with everything happening and Twitter's involvement and at least trying to curb some of the racial sentiments and discrimination. Um, have you found anything interesting from your studies so far that you were like, wait, I didn't really think that this was going to yeah. be the outcome? Yeah, I would say one finding that we found is that um, like places that have like negative racial sentiment, 
like it's worse for like birth outcomes for minority moms but also for white moms so like it's not necessarily you don't like you don't have to be the target group to be affected by the racial hostility mm. um and i think a lot of discrimination studies like they only have the bandwidth to study minorities because they're like they basically are run from like other perspective of asking people like oh so yeah have you experienced racial discrimination was it in education and healthcare or like employment and then so it's all the burden all the focus is on like the minority person like the person reporting experience of racism but because our project is looking at like all tweets like sent from an area so you're not just like focusing on like people who report victimization but you're just kind of trying to characterize the entire area and then from there we can kind of look at like okay there are minority women of course mothers and there's a there's also white mothers that give birth in this area yeah. we found that like areas with more racial hostility it's worse birth outcomes for white mothers and minority mothers so i think that could be through like the stress pathway because like you know if you live in like an era that has a lot of hostility that has a lot of antagonism that's not going to be best for your health either um this kind of draws from like sociology literature on like something called collective efficacy and, and social cohesion so like places that are like cohesive where like people trust one another help each other out there's empathy there's like you know organization there's like participation all of that has been found to be beneficial for a person's health but if you have an area that's like divisive and like a lot of prejudice a lot of discrimination that tears up the social fabric and that's not going to be healthy for anybody like it's not going to be healthy for the minorities that you're like the target of the racial discrimination but it's also not going to be healthy for the perpetrators that like the part of the social environment has like broken down um and so kind of highlighting that it's not a healthy environment for anybody um so it's like something that we didn't really expect like we did weren't looking to find but something that's kind of starting to show that's very interesting because i'm also very interested in maternal health as i just continue to explore medicine and different fields of medicine. That's just something that I personally connect a lot with. And a lot of the times, yeah, a lot of my focus is like understanding how racial and ethnic minority mothers, particularly black mothers, um, are affected by all the stress that's around us all the time. But yeah, I guess like we, I haven't come across anything that says that perpetrators are also can be affected. Um, that's that's very interesting actually so going back a little bit about figuring out the maternal health outcomes are you partnering with hospitals or are you getting data from hospitals how does that piece work out um, figuring out the health outcomes yes so um for the health outcomes we're relying on like the national um like vital statistics so um we get birth outcomes data from that so it's like they, they give us, um, well, and any researcher that's interested, there's like the public version and then there's like the restricted version. So any, the public version is actually available to anybody who wants to download um, birth and death records, but they, the, the, the restricted version will have the, some of the geographical identifiers. So um, like for instance, the county and state uh, where the birth occurred um and so that's what we, we the data that we get so we get like all births that happen in the u.s and we also get like for a woman um where where does she live and like it's basically birth certificate data so it has like data on like prenatal care 
and some smoking behaviors and maternal age and covariates as well. So all the data actually comes from the birth certificate and the national biostatistics collection, um, which like not all countries have this, like where they collect information every birth, but the US is one of them. And we leverage that um, data system um, to merge with our exposure, which is racial discrimination with the, and then with the birth certificate, you can have like, the, you know, the, the outcome of the birth, whether it's preterm, whether the baby is low birth weight, very low birth weight, and any other complications. That's very cool. So other than, um, so we have talked about the data sets that you've used are Twitter, Google Street View, um, you're currently looking at, I think it was the chatbot. Are there any other data sets that your lab and you utilize and use to like look at other disparities? Yeah, so I feel like it's I feel like it's always like ongoing because like when you get into this field, you're like there's so many interesting data, um, and so another data that that might be useful for people as well. It's a platform called CrowdTangle, and it's like free. Um, and CrowdTangle gives you access to Facebook because Facebook actually doesn't have an API, so you can't download data at like. Twitter has an API where you can use download data because they they set up they they set up their platform so that researchers can use it to understand like a public tweets like a subset of public tweets. Um, but Facebook is locked down. Facebook and Instagram are locked down. There's no API. Um, but CrowdTangle is like a way in, like a way in to look at Facebook content. So, but only publicly available Facebook content. So our first project is actually looking at like. Um, like the way news me media portray race and racism. So, um, it's looking at, we built a list of like national news sources, liberal news sources, independent news sources, local news sources, and like within those, like how do they characterize like racism and racism. So it's kind of like from the perspective of like the news media. So because so far we've only looked at like individual posters or like yeah. since the news media talk about race and racism. So that's like one of the projects we're doing on that. And just so our um, audience knows, can you describe what is an API? I know you. Oh yes, that. yes. So um, an API is something that you use to kind of connect with, um, like for instance, Twitter. Like if you're interested in downloading Twitter, um, instead of like building a program to scrape Twitter, which they don't like, I don't, I don't, I don't think that's part of the terms of use through the API and you can kind of request data like for instance you can like there's like search terms request data oh what are tweets that have these keywords or like what are tweets mm -hmm. yeah so it makes your data collection much easier because they set up the structure for you to actually download data yeah um and other people use the API actually for like you know how you see websites where they have like social media posts like be like yeah yeah so they're calling the API to display those social media, social media. Uh -huh. So it just makes it the display of data, the downloading of data easier when there, there's an API so that you're not, you're not needing to like scrape the data illegally. <laughs> so because they kind of set up the system for you. Um, so that's an API just makes like requests to that program and like it allows you to display their data um, or download the data if they allow that. Yeah. And you said um, it was CrowdTangle that- Oh yeah, it's CrowdTangle. Yeah. So like investigators out there can actually apply for access to CrowdTangle and it's a completely free platform. Okay. 
All right, good to know. Not that I'm yeah. going to be using it, but <laughs> interesting. Yeah. Um, another thing that I came across when I was uh, reading up on your work, you're also included and in part of the Big Data for Health Equity group. Yes, yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that particular group? Oh, yes. So that is like a um, incorporates like investigators from multiple universities. Um, and it's like a, a group looking at how um, we can kind of come together and like collaborate on projects that particularly look at like racism and health and like equity and health. So it's kind of like um, we work on our own projects, but then we come together to kind of see like, oh, what is this lab doing? And then see where we have commonalities and we write papers together from those commonalities. Um, and I think the it's it's like nice because you kind of see perspective from different labs and different parts of the country. Um, and and we all, it's a it's kind of a, it's growing to be a larger and larger group. Uh, but it's nice. It's basically our our way to to keep in touch with how other labs are kind of doing this work, but in a but with a different lens. And we also work together on uh, on projects. That's really cool. So I have a question on how does, so a lot of the work that you, for example, and a lot of the scientists and researchers from Big Data for Health Equity Group are doing are very lab focused or very academic. Um, and it's contained in papers and in journals. How do you see taking this information and disseminating it to the public, to grassroots organizations, to activists? How how do you think we can move forward with actually using this data to make changes? Yes. Um, I'll start with like the most human involved project, which is Rosie. So like from the get go, Rosie has, um, when we're thinking about Rosie, designing Rosie, uh, we work closely with community members and community organizations. So for instance, uh, we work with an organization called Hearts and Home. Um, so it's an organization where um, they, it's um, the um, foster, like teen moms in foster care. So lots of like um, challenges, right? You're a teen mom, you're in foster care, you have a young baby. Um, and then we work with them to kind of say like, okay, in this situation, would you use Rosie? Like what inform, like where do you get your information sources from? Are there any barriers to using Rosie? What kind of topics would interest you? um like for rosie to respond to and they were part of our pilot where we where they kind of gave us uh like information like oh these are the topics that new moms are interested in yes the it's not a barrier of um like having a smartphone is not a barrier because we didn't really know be like is it a barrier to use and they're like no everybody has a smartphone um and then they're and then so um designing rosie and like working with organizations and now where we're building out rosie um, we're demoing Rosie that uh, Rosie at like health fairs, and we're going to visit like diaper banks and farmers markets. So just being out there and talking to new moms and organizations about like what they see as their clients needing, what do moms actually like need information on. So it's all like a really close interplay because we hope we want to build a product that is useful to real women. Um, and and so with Rosie's release, it's going to be open source. So it's always a Rosie's design to help like on the ground, like with um, actual humans. Um, 
I would say with like the Twitter Racism Project, they like one, they we're hoping to shine a light on like, I think sometimes like racism is invisible. Like people don't really know the extent to which is pervasive, the extent to which it like actually impacts health and for whom. And so kind of just shining a light on that, being able to measure it, just not for like one city or just upon victims, like putting all the burden on victims to report. We try to shine a light on like, oh, like all areas, like the entire US, like what are like different like levels of racism that encounter and how are they impacting health and for whom, what groups. And so I think that's trying to like raise awareness that there is racism and is like baked into like the social network. So it's not just like, not just like one person experience, but it's like, you know, it's like a society that we have to recognize that we're perpetuating it. We're like not it, like, you know, there needs to be where like um, efforts to kind of address it head on and like bias training, right? Um, and so we're trying to shining light on like how pervasive it is and what are some of the health impacts. For Google Street View, um, it's like raising awareness about what features are important for health. Like we look at like sidewalks, for instance, like do sidewalks, are they associated with lower obesity and to what extent? Um, street lights, street signs, like dilapidated buildings, changing fence. So we're looking at a particular indicator and try to identify which ones like actually are associated with worse or better health. And also it like we're finding that it depends on the health outcomes. So like the COVID paper was actually really interesting because it was like flew in the face of like patterns we've seen previously. Um, Cause the robust previous pattern was like areas that have like more urban development. So areas that have like mixed land use. So if you have like a residence next to a commercial building, like, you know, like kind of New York, right? When you like go out and you're like, oh, here's a CVS or like here's a Shake Shack or something or um, like areas that have mixed line use generally are associated with better outcomes, areas with sidewalks, crosswalks, like all those. But for those like urban indicators, they are associated with worse health because they throw people for COVID, right? Because COVID, because there's a, it's an infectious disease. So the, um, the indicators that are associated with like mixing of people like sidewalks, mixed land use, they're gonna be like they were associated with higher COVID infections just because they throw people together. They're like they increase social interaction. So for all other outcomes, they're they're associated with uh, like lower chronic conditions uh, and like generally better health, like lower mortality. But for COVID, increase like infections given the increased social interaction. That's really interesting. You mentioned, I, I also saw that in your paper that um, in those mixed neighborhoods, the general outcomes are better. But I'm just curious, um, just for myself, how is how does that compare to a lower urban developed area, like let's say a suburb where you have more trees, where you just have more um, sidewalks and less cars and just lower urban developed areas? How does how does uh, the general health outcomes, like for chronic conditions, change between that area versus the mixed neighborhood areas? Yes, I would say it's quite difficult to kind of just uh, like tease it out, um, because a, a few things are there's a few complexities, so. Sometimes like in the suburbs, like you have high SES people concentrate there, right? So you're like 
all these wealthy families. They just like live in like purely residential neighborhoods. And so you have well-off families um, that are generally going to be having better health just because of their background characteristics. So kind of disentangling that. Um, but they don't live in mixed land use. So you, basically you have an issue of like confounding and trying to control for like controlling for like median income. Do you still see associations? Um, and to the, we generally see associations still. So mixed land, it's because uh, mixed land use encourages walking, I would say. So like um, if you live in a purely residential neighborhood, then it, like you have to drive. And like the necessity of like um, walking, like you can't really like walk very easily to your grocery store. Um, but if you live in like a mixed neighborhood, then you're more likely to walk. And that actually really is helpful for health. Um, and like living in New York, for instance, there's like New York City has lower obesity rates because people use the subway. And like, as people know, like the subway, they don't stop directly in front of the store you want. You have to like walk another five minutes. So that encourages walking and, and that's really good for, and for like um, chronic conditions in particular. But like green space is definitely a really tricky indicator because one thing that we've noticed in the difficulty of trying to characterize the entire US, the US as a landmass is highly rural. Like most people are concentrated in cities but the land itself is vast and a lot of it is rural. A lot of it's green, but like people concentrate in cities. So you have this dichotomy of like, I'm characterizing these like areas, but there's nobody living there. It's just all green farms and like desert and mountains. Um, so that becomes hard because like green space then is associated with rurality and rurality is generally associated with lower, um, lower health, like worse health outcomes. Just because they don't have access. Yeah, a lot of it. Farther from a hospital. Yeah. I'm glad that we uh, touched based on SES uh, as well because my family who lives in Minnesota now, they live in the suburb and um, it, it's like, yeah, it's very stark of a difference, at least from personal experience, right? But I was just curious to see what data says between the mixed lane neighborhoods and suburbs in general and here it makes sense that it's very nuanced and not very easy to tease out okay moving on to the next part of our podcast we're pretty much done with talking about your projects and about you and we're moving on to more like closing questions that we ask pretty much all of our guests so the first one is what do you expect is the future of ai or big data in medicine and where will it be in 10 to 20 years? I think um, incrementally using the data that we have to a fuller extent, um, like at least for public health. Um, surprisingly, when I got into this field, or maybe not so surprisingly, like people who uh, work in marketing, they are on the ball. They have gone it. They'll be like, yes, we know. We like, they totally get on the bandwagon for big data because they have to know what, what you think. Like they're in your mind. They're like, I like they track everything, right? They're like, if you want to know about the big data, you just ask the marketing exec. And they're like, yes, I like, you know, they are on top of it because they've already like utilized that to their advantage to kind of know what they're, what, what the people want. 
right? And they will serve it up, right? They would track what all the activities that you do on your phone. And then they'll be like, oh, she was looking at that blue sneakers. I'm going to show her ads that about the blue sneakers on every platform that she goes to. So um, for public health, I think kind of like getting on board as well and be like, okay, what is the data that's out there and how can we actually leverage it to understand people's health patterns and the factors that affect their health? Um, and then using that to be cost saving and also more reactive faster. Because I think the way we do um, public health and medicine, like it takes a long time to like do the studies and collect the data and then respond. But as we saw with COVID, there's like no time. Like sometimes we have to react very quickly. And in those situations, we have to know what's happening on the ground quickly. And using the surveillance data and the already collected data out there helps us understand faster but we have to like have things in place and i come from uh, like being like oh yeah the data is there and i have to learn to leverage it and set up protocols to actually use it mine it build inferences on it uh, you touched base on that already i was going to ask what do you think are the barriers of kind of getting to that mindset where a lot of marketing execs are right where they're like okay this is happening we know it let's get to work <laughs> Whereas in public health and medicine, like you mentioned, it can be time consuming and you have to do a paper and you have to like go through all of these steps before an actual change can happen um, with real human because there are real implications, right? Um, and as healthcare workers, we're very aware of that. What other barriers can you think of that prevents public health and medicine from like from progressing in this big data and AI and healthcare sphere? Where are we getting stuck on? Um, I think one barrier is like collaboration and being like, um, sometimes we feel like we have to do everything in-house, right? Where we have to like, if we're from the School of Public Health, we just get collaboration from the School of Public Health. Or when the School of Medicine, we just get collaboration in the School of Medicine. And we're like, but we have no expertise in that that we need. And so we feel stuck. Um, but I think like just like going out of the school and like partnering with people will allow you to answer more questions um, and not being afraid of that. Like partnership would be like stepping out and be like, you know, like you know, so that 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 scary part of like like going across a different school and collaborating with entirely new discipline. But with that new discipline, you're going to be able to answer questions you haven't been. Um, so I think forming those connections um, is like a first step, um, and then being like open to a different data source. I think one thing that's scary is because uh, we have spent a lot of time, for instance, quantifying biases in surveys like what are some like biases what like you know but like what is the bias of twitter what's the bias for like facebook what's the, like you know we don't we haven't quantified biases for the new data sources so like we are afraid because we don't know the biases that it's too noisy too messy and too error prone for us to look at but be, but in, but even though we haven't characterized all the biases it still might be useful because like for instance, if we got like people's purchases from like, you know how you have like the grocery store cars, you track everything you buy. So like, and there are teams out there that partner with those companies and analyze what people buy. So instead of like asking them to report, which is very difficult for anybody to like report on like what they spent $200 a week on, like every week, 
Um, so kind of just using the data and like and like being open to new data sources and then beginning to um, characterize the errors in those data sources and addressing them and building methods for those new data sources is, would be like step two. That's very good advice. Yeah, the collaboration piece, I think, like even being in the School of Medicine, myself at the University of Minnesota, I, I can definitely like feel myself siloing like sometimes like, oh, why do you have to do this just with my medical faculty and my medical friends and peers? It's a very good advice, um, which brings us to our next question. What advice would you give to your 25 year old self? 25. I think I was in my master's program. Um, when you're, I think when you're 25, you're, well, I think people, people are different, right? They have, some people have already had babies by 25. And some people are like, I need to pay my student loans. <laughs> um, I think when you're 25, you don't know really how life is going to play out. You're still like figuring out what you want, what you want for your career. Um, but I think there are core lessons that came along the way. Um, so that kind of helped me not be stymied by some of the things I see that stymied people. So like one thing is like the imposter syndrome. So I feel like, um, I don't know when I came to the belief that I feel like normal people can still do great things. So like I you like you don't have to be born a genius to like do great things. And so I never put on myself as like, oh, I have to be a genius in this area or whatever to be able to make progress in it. So I never felt like you don't have to like construct this like image of what you should be to do something worthy or to contribute. And maybe yeah, so that's that's not been a struggle. Um and then you, there's certain things you have control for and certain things you don't. But then there's a lot you have control for. And it's like focusing on that and moving forward. Um, and like, I would say like one thing that came, because I came from like a single parent household and I grew up, you know, basically on public education. And then I went to Stanford, which was like a totally new scary world where you have like the best competing, right? So it's like super scary and stressful <laughs> for like a person thrown into that environment. But then you kind of come to the realization that it's of nobody's benefit to make comparisons with like you to another person that you're on like completely different tracks. And just because another person's doing great things doesn't mean that you can't do great things. So another person doing, you know, something doesn't take away from what you're doing. And, and kind of like, I would say like those two, those few things kind of helped me like move forward in like a positive, like, you know, feeling about like what I'm doing and what I'm contributing and kind of just help like navigate. I feel like early on, those were like the things that I struggled with, like comparison with other people and also like ex putting expectations of what you should be or who you should be. Um, but kind of just knowing that you can make a contribution regardless of where you come from. As for just good advice for myself, I think um, also somebody who's in their mid-20s and just trying to figure out career-wise where I want to be, where I want to go with the imposter syndrome piece, you said, and seeing my peers like doing amazing things is like, wow, Risa, what are you doing with your life? Um, that was very good advice, actually. Thank you for that. 
yeah yeah as a young person I definitely struggle with that and like you don't like you know you don't want to be like you don't want to feel like negativity like like when when you hear good news you don't want it to be like make you feel bad right because that that's not the way like it's going to help us move forward I try to be like that was a hard lesson to kind of put in practice like how you how you feel you know how you deal with comparisons how you deal with expectations so it's definitely something that you know when you're like when in your 20s you're trying to navigate all that yeah in 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 your research work and in your career professional life what do you usually do when you get stuck in your work and you feel like oh I don't know what I'm doing next Ah, so when I was like year one of being a faculty at Utah, um, I attend like grants working, uh, grants writing workshop and the professor there was like saying he, he was on sabbatical and he went to Europe and visited all the museums. And then he's like, don't t- let people tell you what you should do for your sabbatical and that it's not productive <laughs> to be visiting all these museums. Because he was like saying, I got so many grant ideas, like I got five grant ideas and later on, like they were successfully funded and the, the, the process of generating an idea doesn't have to be painful. Like it can be creative, it can be like enjoyable. And so for me, it's like, yes, like, so kind of coming from a perspective that you don't have to like make your work painful, like you can go out and like enjoy your life and, and kind of trust that you will be able to like see the next idea that you want to do. So like sometimes I will just be like standing at like uh, waiting for the bus or waiting for the streetcar and that I'll come up with the next idea. It was like more like a geo portal so that people can like draw like a polygon around their neighborhood and like get like summary statistics for that neighborhood. So, you, so like ideas come from just living and not being afraid of just like living and enjoying and making your work you know, enjoyable because there's no use being successful and unhappy, right? So we try to make that experience enjoyable for yourself in like, and then you can also just naturally continue. Because one of the things I noticed is like, when you're really hard on yourself and you're working all the time, um, it's actually bad for if you're, especially if you're in an area of health disparities, because like you deplete your empathy because like you're so tired and overworked that you start to like not have and like the empathy for other people, you're like, why are you complaining, right? Because like, you're so hard on yourself. So that like the whole process is like not beneficial for anybody. So kind of just like, in, like enjoying the process, allowing the creative process to take place. And it like the ideas will come to you. The compassion fatigue is real sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, was, that was also, wow, such great advice. There's no use in being successful you're unhappy right I'm gonna gonna remember that (laughs) next time I'm super stressed okay now on to like more fun questions (laughs) um what what do you find joy in what 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 do you usually like to do for fun oh yeah so um I had my baby later on in life but now I feel like uh even though like a lot of my hours is spent like on work but like my baby has like 99 percent of my heart and so be like yeah, he's like the sun in my universe. Like everything kind of be like, oh, like so, like all like the memories, like the like precious memories of he's a baby. So I would say being a mom is like the, yeah, it's like the best. Thing. What? How old is your baby? Um, three and a half. 
Oh my gosh, cute. Such a cute age. And do you have any hobbies or I mean, oh, you're obviously very busy being a mom, but anything that you do yeah. for yourself? Um, I like to run. So I like to kind of um, in the evenings when he goes like dad puts him down and then I, I take time to like run and listen to music and like watch TV. <laughs> um, so I would say running is like my hobby. Nice. Are you, do you like, uh, are, are you training for something? Do you like run like, I don't know, half marathons or something? Marathons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just kind of run for like, fitness so I kind of run around my neighborhood so no yeah that's probably good to try to train for something but so far just more like recreational running okay okay and so you've been in California you've been in Utah you've been obviously in Maryland now where are you going next are you staying put in Maryland for a little bit I think I'm gonna stay put for a little bit there was also time where I spent um my postdoc in Boston um Mm -hmm. And then I actually was, I met my husband in New York City. We were summer interns. Crazy. And, yeah. And I went to my, I uh, got my PhD from North Carolina, UNC. So I feel like I kind of like crisscrossed the country um, and got to get lots of, I think that's like the one nice thing about like your training is like you can take you to like a lot of different places. You get to see places where, you, you know, you like unexpected. Um, so, but right now, I think I, we're going to stay in the DC area for a while. Well, thank you, Dr. Nguyen, for your time today. This was amazing. I had so much fun talking to you and learned so much from you. Um, and, and thank you so much for even being interested in our project and like kind of, and like, you know, shining a spotlight on it and everything.